Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and a very warm welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news as well as insight and analysis into all the topics you are talking about in football. I mean, McGarry with me as always is Dr. Duncan Castles. I say doctor because he's doctor of transfers. And I don't mean that in a dodgy way either. Uh, today, we will be discussing uh, the biggest transfer story in football in the last 20 years. One that we've discussed many times before. Uh, of course, that would be Leo Messi and Barcelona. We'll also have news for you on Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool, and the historical saga of IFAB and the handball rules. Duncan, we're going to start today with uh, Senor Leo Messi. Uh, and of course, uh, we've reported widely uh, over the last few months on the comings and goings in terms of his possible move away from the camp now. It's uh, our understanding and indeed our information that uh, the new, or should say, the second coming of President Joan Laporta has also brought with it a new proposal for the Argentina captain with regards to staying in the Catalan capital for at least one more year. And that would be a compromise situation for both parties. Uh, Messi, uh, as Graham Hunter told us on last Friday's Transfer Window podcast, uh, is owed 60 million euros in deferred wages and bonuses, uh, which he's due to be paid at the end of his contract, which of course expires in June this year. However, this in, uh, proposal would mean uh, a, probably a good outcome for both parties in that Messi doesn't necessarily want to leave and also Barcelona don't want to have to commit to another and very expensive contract that would keep him at Camp Nou for the rest of his career, assuming that he would play beyond uh, his 34th birthday, which is very likely anyway. But of course, it would mean also that Messi could extend after season 21-22. It won't be cheap uh, because Leo Messi doesn't come cheap. the figures we have been told are around 20 to 25 million euros in salary and bonuses net, which would be for one season only. However, as I said, it would mean that there would be an option for Messi to leave uh, in 2022 and pursue the final years of his playing career elsewhere, possibly in the MLS in North America where he's already expressed an interest of playing out the remaining time that he has. 
Uh, Duncan, this does seem to be clever and a bit wily from uh, the old dog, Joan Laporta, in terms of um, effectively uh, not being the president who allowed their greatest ever player to leave, but also uh, not putting the club into further financial jeopardy because, as we know, their debt is in excess of 700 million euros and committing to any longer contract with Messi would... mean that they were putting themselves into a further difficult financial situation. Yeah, we've talked about this several times in the podcast that Laporta wanted to keep Messi um, and wanted to do it in a fashion where he would not be the president who lost the the club's greatest ever player. Um, And more importantly, that he wouldn't lose him to one of their European rivals. Um, Manchester City obviously made that 700 million euro offer, um, including time in the MLS backed up by Abu Dhabi in the summer that Messi had agreed to take up but wasn't able to because he wasn't prepared to take legal action against the club when uh, Bartomeu, um, Graham Hunter's neighbour as we learned in the last podcast, um, refused to honour a clause in the contract. Um this way you don't have much of a change actually in terms of Barcelona's security over the player because that previous contract that Messi was on and, and is, is running out at the pre- at present was four years guaranteed, 245 million euros guaranteed for Messi plus very substantial bonuses for performances, loyalty bonuses, uh, signing on bonuses. But it also included that infamous clause where he could walk away at the end of each season if he decided um, he wanted to move elsewhere. So effectively what Barcelona had before was a rolling one-year contract with an option in Messi's favour to leave each season, but a commitment on their part to pay them up to four years worth of money on the biggest contract in the history of football. What Laporta's offering and has offered pre prior to the election to Messi and which has received a degree of approval from Messi and that we saw the player and his son go and vote for Laporta to become president in Sunday's election. Is a, is a deal in which they're only committed to one year of payment and they can re-examine it in a year's time and, and say, well, financially, we don't want to commit any further to, to the player um, I, or we reduce the wage or, you know, if you do really well and, and context um, provides a, a reason for doing so, we can increase the terms once Barcelona's finances are sorted out. So yeah, what you have is a compromise and one that, that reduces the financial commitment to Barcelona. Um, and, and I think you mentioned the important factor here is that Messi's family don't want to leave and Laporta's aware of that. They know that his wife and children are reluctant to go to Manchester. Um, you know, there's a, that if they're given a choice between the two, Paris would be the preferred destination. But ideally, they want to stay in Barcelona. You have that change of atmosphere with Laporta's election. You have the people who gave Messi such a difficult time to the extent where they were hiring um, social media companies to, to uh, damage his name. Um, with payments coming from the the, the football club, that's the alleged um, 
offence that Bartomeu, um, the chief executive of Barcelona and two other senior employees were arrested for last week. Um, they, those people are out now. So you, you have a change in atmosphere and you have a change in performance on the field. And then you have a proposal which says to Messi, well, we will still pay you very well. You'll still be the best paid player at the club. Um, you get to carry on here. Um, your family get to stay here. Is that going to be enough um, to help us avoid the embarrassment of you leaving to go to a major European rival uh, in the summer? Also interesting, Duncan, uh, I described uh, Laporta as a, a, a wily fox. Um, I was told uh, by a very um, good source, someone as close to Laporta, that um, even before the election last Sunday, uh, he had already uh, met with Messi's father, George, and uh, spoken about this particular uh, potential for a compromise situation um, because he wanted to uh, introduce his uh, second coming, if you like, um, as Barca president uh, with a bang um, in order that uh, he was making good on the promise that uh, he had made public, which was, I will do everything I can to keep Messi at the club. Um, Graham Hunter told us last Friday that um, the relationship with Ronald Koeman has improved significantly um, and also um, that the uh, playing style uh, that uh, Koeman has developed and it's taken him a while and obviously they're away, a little bit away off in terms of um, winning La Liga but it's clear that Messi is enjoying his football again. He's scoring goals freely like he always has in his career at Barcelona. And it seems to me that um, things are moving in a direction which probably will not uh, see him play in the Premier League with Manchester City should, uh, as you pointed out, those uh, happy little family pictures um, of him voting in the presidential election and everything that Graham was telling us in terms of detail last week. It look, does look like the odds are now stacked in Barcelona's favour albeit there's nothing 100% assured, because clearly um, uh, in terms of financial security, um, the offer from Manchester City and any offer from Paris Saint-Germain um, would be tempting because it would be more than one year. But if you're Leo Messi, you're going to have uh, your choice of clubs anyway, even a year later, uh, just because your name your reputation and your talent carries that with you. I don't think Lionel Messi has to worry about financial security. Um, I think <laughs> we, we do know that his career as a footballer and his management by his father, Jorge, has had, a, has had a, an incredible degree of avariciousness about it in terms of salary discussions. And he was famous for coming back basically every season more or less every season during his time at Barcelona and asking for a pay rise. He, he's been on a substantial salary. He's lost some of it to the tax authorities and to bad financial planning. But I don't think uh, looking after his, his future is, is key um, to this discussion. 
I think one thing that Graham Hunter said in Friday's podcast, slipped in in Friday's podcast, was that the enthusiasm from Pep Guardiola to sign Messi at Manchester City was a very much a tempered enthusiasm. He was going along with what Abu Dhabi wanted to do rather than driving the process himself. Um, and, and I think that there's, you know, there's good reason for that. Something we talked about when we discussed whether the 700 million offer from Manchester City Abu Dhabi was a good footballing decision. Um, and, and that's, is Messi capable of adding to Manchester City um, for that amount of money into the team at this stage of his career when his physical performances have declined, where there'd be essentially an obligation to play him all the time. Um, there, there was a question mark over whether it was a good football decision for Messi to make and whether it was a good football decision for Manchester City to make. So I, I think all of those factors are important here. And now you have this change in the environment he's working in and results starting to come on the field. And, you know, the ability or, or the potential that with Laporta and the massive line of credit that he's secured from the banks, that again, something Graham Hunter talked about on Friday, that that can be invested in the team and he can win that additional Champions League title that he is desperate to win at the club where he's spent his entire career. Also the case, uh, Duncan, um, not to uh, traverse too far away from this particular subject, but um, information that we have received um, regarding Manchester City's priority uh, is that obviously replacing Sergio Aguero um, up front is uh, something which they are prioritising and also um, Messi's Obviously not an out-and-out striker, even though he's played uh, and effectively, you know, became the first false nine uh, under Guardiola at Barcelona. Um, but that Erling Haaland um, and Lautaro Martinez and Pelo Dybala have all uh, are all names who've cropped up uh, in terms of City's recruitment department with regards to replacing Aguero. Aguero's representatives have not received any offer to extend his contract um, at the Etihad for next season. And it looks increasingly like uh, he will be phased out um, of uh, the City team on the basis that, um, not that, of course, he's not loved and he's, of course, he's City's um, record goal scorer, etc., etc., but that. Um, with the playing demands uh, in the modern game, uh, when you count in Champions League domestic competitions and, of course, the 38 Premier League season uh, games, then uh, between 50 to 60 games per season is beyond Aguero now, and therefore they have to, in both the short, medium and long term, uh, look at how they're going to replace those goals that Aguero's given him during his time at the club. From Barcelona and Manchester uh, and even Paris, if you like, um, in these days when you can't travel, you can travel wherever you want on the Transfer Window podcast. And so we're landing in Milan now, where Gianluigi Donnarumma, uh, the Italy international goalkeeper, 
and client of course the infamous Mino Raiola is out of contract this summer as well and is the subject of interest from many top European clubs on that basis as well as of course the fact that he is actually very good um Duncan, uh, our information, of course, is that both Chelsea and Manchester United have been in talks with Raiola regarding Donnarumma, uh, a 21-year-old who uh, at a stage in his career where he has played since he was, I think, 16 or 17 in Milan's first team uh, and also uh, is someone who would be highly sought after uh, anywhere in European football, but the goalkeeping situation, as you reported last week at Manchester United regarding Henderson and De Gea, that it's undecided if either of them should stay as number one goalkeeper. Um, clearly, uh, that's a decision to be made, but uh, with the Europa League tie uh, coming up this week between United and Milan, uh, that makes it more interesting with regards to that situation, but also the situation at Chelsea, where Eduard Mendy and Kepa Arrizubalaga uh, are two number ones fighting for one spot as well. It looks like Donnarumma has an opportunity uh, to move to England should he choose to, accompanied by the commission that Raiola uh, seeks and would want for a free transfer for such a valuable asset. Uh, there is an opportunity for uh, either club um, as well as others to secure Donnarumma on a longer-term contract without there being a fee. Um, if he were to leave, and that's a big if because I think it's certainly the case that he um, would like to stay in Italy, in Serie A, and with AC Milan, uh, I'm told that his um, general feeling with regards to moving country. And of course, he's still a young man, um, so therefore maybe feels slightly intimidated by the idea of the culture switch. Um, but doesn't mean to say that you rule it out. Uh, is the case that he will have the opportunity to do so if he moved to England. Given what you told us last week regarding Manchester United, given what we know about Chelsea, uh, can you see there being an auction process uh, which would tempt Donnarumma? Uh, we know it would certainly tempt Mino um, <laughs> with regards to the commission. Well, Raul has played this game before with Donnarumma when he broke into the Milan team, um, debut at 16 years of age, uh, obviously was on a, a minor contract at that stage. He marketed him to other countries. He got a very substantial contract for his age and, and, and for a goalkeeper of any kind in Italy. He's currently paid six million net. Um, but Raula wants a lot more than that. He's asking Milan for 10 million net to renew. Um, my information is that Milan have offered 7.5 million net as a uh, proposal to keep him at the club. Um, you reported a few weeks ago that Raiola was offering him to English and um, Spanish sides to try and, uh, and generate a market. Um, Manchester United 
prominent amongst those. Um, as we reported on Friday, Manchester United are in the market for a top goalkeeper at present. Um, they have a decision to make over whether they go and, and bring someone in who can be the first choice goalkeeper. Um, shift David De Gea out, whose performances have declined. A, a statistic that I was looking at the other day, he's currently 17th in the Premier League this season on save percentage, to the extent that you can use that as a judgment of a, of a goalkeeper's quality. Or whether they um, promote Dean Henderson to first choice. And Dean Henderson has yet to prove that he is at the level where he can become... Manchester United's starting goalkeeper with all of the pressure upon that position for a sustained period of time. Now, what's happening now is that Henderson, because De Gea has gone to Spain to be with his partner for the birth of her um, child, um, is getting the opportunity to prove that he is good enough to be Manchester United goalkeeper in a sustained run of games. And you have to say he started well. He had a strong performance against Manchester City. Um, he was uh, pivotal in Manchester United's second goal with a very clever um, throwout, rapid throwout of defence that set Luke Shaw free and, and gave Manchester United the goal that basically decided the game because once they had that two-goal lead, it looked very difficult for City to get back into it. He's playing confidently. He certainly has a huge degree of belief in himself, um, thinks he's the best goalkeeper at Manchester United. He thinks he's the best goalkeeper um, in England, a native goalkeeper and should be first choice for the European Championship. So he is the man in possession. We, as you say, are going to have a very interesting head-to-head uh, contest between Henderson and Donnarumma in the Europa League over the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, but Manchester United are in a position where they have the opportunity to discuss with Italy's top goalkeeper, someone who at age 21 has played over 200 Serie A games already um, and is available on a free transfer in the summer. And they can bring him in if they meet Raiola's wages demands, which are less, substantially less than the amount they paid De Gea at present. Um, and have a goalkeeper who you could expect to retain at the club. Um, you know, Raiola uh, conditions set to a side in this case, but assuming you can can keep those contracts going, Donnarumma could be first choice goalkeeper for Manchester United for the next 15 years. So you can understand why they're looking at that and discussing it and um, calculating whether the, he, should we take this opportunity to sign this goalkeeper um, move De Gea elsewhere and potentially because Dean Henderson is not going to be happy if a top class goalkeeper is brought in to compete for the first team shirt we, we I told you in detail on this podcast that Henderson wanted the opportunity to go head to head with De Gea for, the, for the, the starting slot at Manchester United this season and basically been denied it up until this point where De Gea decides he uh, is going to take a leave of absence. Um, Henderson wants to be a starting goalkeeper in the Premier League and he has interest from clubs like Chelsea. Um, there is interest from Tottenham. There has been interest from other top clubs in uh, in English football. So 
that also is an aspect of the decision United have to make is if they go for Donnarumma, then what do they do with Henderson? Um, but there's there's also a positive side to that and that if they were to decide that Donnarumma is definitely better than Henderson, then there will be a market for selling Henderson to another Premier League club. So you can offset a fair amount of that substantial salary that Mina Ryle is asking for um, to bring the Italian to English football by taking in a transfer free from another English club for Henderson. Interestingly, Duncan, um, between the two goalkeepers at Manchester United, they currently earn just short of around half a million pounds per week. That's a huge investment for any club when you've got one position to fill. Right, and, and, and they are also paying a substantial salary to Sergio Romero, who's not even in the Premier League and Champions League squad because of the way he felt uh, he was mistreated by the club in the summer. It was them not allowing them to, to move elsewhere. Romero will leave at the end of the season. But yeah, you're right. The, the spending on goalkeeper salaries is unprecedented by Manchester United. And, and, and unsustainable. And so, um, again... What I've been told by sources at Manchester United is that um, Solskjaer and his coaching staff um, have been consulted and asked, okay, how do we resolve this? Because clearly um, this situation is untenable. Uh, We can't afford to pay uh, this amount of money to um, players who effectively can't even fit in the team um therefore you have to make a decision about what happens or who is going to be number one etc etc uh i suppose offloading the hair would be the um primary option with regards to his salary but he's not going to get that money anywhere else in the current financial climate um so they would have to compensate him on his contract and then bring Donnarumma in, should that be the choice, um, albeit at a lesser rate uh, in terms of payment. But it's something which they have to address, uh, I think, this summer, and um, and one which is, is a difficult conundrum to solve. It is. Um, you know, the similarity, similarities to the De Gea Henderson situation in the, the ideal world you get you have both of them at the club and they managed to solve that last summer so they did retain both at the club they managed to convince Henderson that he would get a fair shot at playing signed him to that long term contract and they've had the option of these two um, very good goalkeepers all season long with De Gea mainly being played so, he, so it's been very expensive for them to do it but from a a quality of resources available to the manager point of view they've they've provided them with with really good options in goal and I think you have to praise them for looking at this Donnarumma uh, scenario Um, because the easy thing to do here would be let's say we decide that Dean Henderson is the better goalkeeper and I don't think it's clear that Dean Henderson is a better goalkeeper yet I think he still has to prove that he can do it under the limelight of being first choice for England, being first choice for Manchester United. And we've seen goalkeepers, particularly English goalkeepers in the past, um, rapidly deteriorate in form once they get that 
um, that that light shone upon them of being first choice for the national team, for example. We've seen multiple goalkeepers in the past that Manchester United struggle with being first choice there. But if you're not sure, and if you have a problem with David De Gea, and I, I think most people would say that it's clear that his form has declined markedly over that from that period where he was voted Premier League Goalkeeper of the Year four seasons out of five. Um, why not look at someone like Donnarumma, Italian national team goalkeeper that you're being offered for a salary that's less than your current first choice goalkeeper, who's 21 years of age, you can have at least a decade of, of using him if that move works. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people would argue he at present would be an upgrade on both De Gea and on Henderson. Now that there's the, the sort of emotional side of Henderson's a Manchester United Academy product, albeit someone who signed from Carlisle United, and apparently they pay a very substantial amount to Carlisle United um, for every appearance he makes in, Car- in Carlisle United terms. So you have that emotional thing of he's an academy product. Um, how good can he become? We must give him the shirt. Um, he's going to be the goalkeeper for the next 10 years for Manchester United. There's no question about it. If you're doing it on a pragmatic basis, I think you look at Donnarumma and you try and make a judgment. You say, actually, he might be the better long-term option. He might be the more capable keeper. He's the one who's proved himself in Serie A and proved himself for the Italian national team. Um, And we can get him for less than our current goalkeeper and we can sell Henderson and make good money on him now when his stock is high and we provide and and deliver a stronger squad going forward and that's what recruitment should be about so I think here you see Manchester United doing things logically and and considering an opportunity Um, and I'm fascinated to see what their, their final decision will be and Manchester United fans for any of you who may have missed that um Please rewind because Dr. D just said you have to praise Manchester United for the way they've looked at this and handled it. So, um, Fat Boy Slim, you got nothing on Dr. D. Praise you like we should. Uh, <laughs> we will leave it at that in terms of Man United Duncan uh, and come back to them, of course, later in the week after the uh, game with AC Milan in the Europa League. Bizarre situation, bizarre circumstances, and unexpected as well, which all of which describe Anfield right now with regards to six consecutive defeats never before recorded in the history of Liverpool Football Club. And a briefing from Fenway Sports Group, the owners of Liverpool, who have felt it necessary to put it out there that Jurgen Klopp's job is safe, despite the fact that in the last two seasons, he has won Champions League, World Club Championship, and the club's first Premier League title, uh, or first, we should say, top flight uh, title um, in 30 years. Duncan, I'm intrigued by this. We've talked about Klopp in the last couple of weeks and, you know, what the situation is at uh, Liverpool Football Club with regards to where they are uh, and exactly what has been going wrong. It is a subject which many people in world football 
are scratching their heads about. Um, what do you make of the fact that, you know, I mean, we always you know, joke about votes of confidence and everything else, and I don't think this is quite, you know, as dramatic as that. Um, but what do you make of the fact that FSG have felt the need to come out, uh, well, not come out publicly, because obviously this was an off-the-record briefing, but to back up Klopp, is it because there's pressure on them from the fans or is it because Klopp feels under pressure uh, regarding the run of results that they've had? Well, they are under pressure from the fans, that's for sure. Um, And there are some fans who are unhappy with Jurgen Klopp at present, remarkable as that is. I I think... The main thing is they've just won the Premier League um, less than 12 months ago. We're, we're what, three quarters of the way through their, their defence of their first title in 30 years, which they delivered after winning the Champions League, which they delivered after reaching the Champions League final. And the owners have to brief the Liverpool press that Klopp's job is safe that they are confident in him, that they feel that the the underperformance is a result of injuries and the condensed um, schedule caused by the COVID pandemic and that they will be making money available for him in the summer. And, you know, the interesting part of the brief was that... um, that it was lack of availability of top defenders rather than complacency which prompted the January signings of Ozan Kabak and Ben Davis. Now, that doesn't really fit with what we were hearing beforehand. It doesn't uh, ring true, that, Duncan. That, I mean, we know because we specialise, obviously, in you know transfer news and information, and we know there were players available at prices which were reduced significantly from last summer. So there's a little bit of um, disingenuousness from FSG regarding, because we also reported uh, prior to the January window opening that Klopp had given them a list of targets and he didn't get them. Uh, Therefore, you have to say the ones that he did sign were not the ones that he necessarily wanted. Yeah, you're you're looking at a market where prices were reduced and... You're right, they could have signed a top centre-back for a lower amount of money than he would have been available pre-pandemic had they decided to go down that route. Instead, they signed Ozan Kabak, who is a a good player on the ball, a good passer of the ball. I talked to a couple of recruitment specialists when he was signed and they both said, I don't see him as being a Liverpool player uh, more a player for La Liga. Um, and, you know, a player who was... A, who was one, performing for one of the bottom clubs in the Bundesliga and he's put in and he's been exposed in, in a defence that was struggling to start with. And the other signing was a £2 million uh, recruit from Preston North End, Ben Davis. So um, I am sure they could have done better than that um, in the January market if they were prepared to put money in. As it is, results have gone into an incredible tailspin. As you say, six straight home defeats, not a goal scored. Um, eight without a win at home in the league. Um, they last scored at home in the league against West Bromwich Albion on December the 27th. They were top of the Premier League then. They're now eighth, 22 points off the top and more importantly, seven points off Champions League qualification. And it looks like Klopp um, with his team selection uh, for their latest defeat at the weekend, is now prioritising Champions League. 
uh, and uh, and thinking that his best chance of getting into the Champions League next season is to win the Champions League again. You even got the the famous mentality monsters um, phrase that was talked about as being part of Liverpool's great success turned into mentality midgets in the in the press at, at present. Um, it's clearly. So, so that was a bit of sizes, to be honest. <laughs> it, it, look, there's clearly something fundamentally wrong here, and I think it goes beyond the injuries to Virgil Van Dijk and Joe Gomez, um, and and I think people at the club feel it goes beyond that, and and there are, I think there are, there are similarities to to things that happened to Klopp at Dortmund, um, where the team. Uh, went into a tailspin in, in his final season there. Um, 15 points from their first 17 games, joint bottom at Christmas. They did, after a winter break, turn things around and they finished seventh in the end, losing a cup final to, to Wolfsburg. But that he was you know, being questioned by the press. He was being very aggressive towards the press when they were asking about whether the player's appetite um, to perform to to play at that you know the, on the edge is the way that Klopp teams play they have to they have to put a huge amount of effort into the pitch they have to be very aggressive in their tackling um, they have to to train hard and it disappeared from Dortmund some of the Dortmund players felt that they needed a change of style um, eventually some of the executives at Dortmund thought they needed a change of tactics and a change of 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 the way in which they were being managed and and the way they were playing, and uh, and Klopp had enough of it. Klopp, the, the relationship was broken in the end. He felt that he had, didn't have the support from above. Um, he felt that uh, his success over seven years, that the methods he used to succeed over seven years, were being questioned, and he decided to walk away. Um, and it's interesting to see what he does here. If he can turn it around, if he can find a, a way of getting them back to the way they're playing, because it's not surprising that you push players again and again and again, top players, they win the Champions League, they win the, the Premier League, and they decide, well, actually, we don't have the motivation to do that anymore. We can't play at the same level. The results aren't coming, and they drop off. So speaking to people close to the club, Duncan, physically, uh, some of the players are feeling the effects of this playing on the edge, training on the edge all the time. It's been relentless for them for three seasons because uh, we shouldn't discount when they lost uh, out to Manchester City so narrowly in the Premier League title race two seasons ago, um, but won the Champions League. And then, of course, bulldozed the Premier League last year. But they're now 36 points worse off than they were at this stage of the season in the Premier League uh, last year, which is, by any standard, a very dramatic drop in standard with regards to points gained and performances. Uh, I wonder if it's not just a case of players feeling a little burned out, but the manager as well feeling a little burned out. And today, uh, and we did bring this up on the podcast, interestingly, Yogi Lu, the German international 
team manager, announced that he will leave his post after this summer's Euros. And Klopp will clearly be a candidate, if not the primary candidate for that job, one which, given the uh, nature of its more relaxed, casual, not as intense uh, way of working because of the international match schedule, etc., etc., could perhaps be just the tonic he needs in terms of going forward, not because his time in club management is, has come to an end, that's definitely not the case, but as a means of still working, but not working at such an intense uh, level of uh, day after day, could be a solution uh, for Germany uh, as uh, manager of the. Uh, DFB's national team, but also for Klopp himself, in order to both keep himself busy, if you like, and um, obviously the Qatar World Cup in 2022 would be the uh, goal in that job for Klopp initially, uh, but then give him options afterwards and elsewhere with regards to what he does next. Now, I'm not suggesting at all. Liverpool fans that Klopp's going to leave or that he's you know in any danger of being sacked uh, my point is that there is sometimes a coming together of um, circumstances which uh, can lead to unexpected uh, outcomes and Duncan I think you know there will be certainly conversations between DFB and Klopp with regards to the possibility of him taking over from Le in the summer. Yeah, and I, I, I'm fascinated to see how long he will endure this period of underperformance, um, particularly if, if FSG don't invest in overhauling the team in, in the summer. We've talked about how a lot of Liverpool's success has um, been aided by recruiting players um, sort of in the mid-tier of the transfer market, so 40, 50 million euro buys from clubs who can't turn down that money, who are, who are top performers at those clubs, bringing them to Liverpool, putting them on a, on a, on a better stage and financing that by selling um guys like Coutinho for well over their market value, um, that they've been strategic, that they plan in a way that um, if a player feels he wants to move to another club, uh, another league, um, on bigger salary, they, they want those players to go and, and tell them that so that they can set it up in a way that they can maximise the transfer fee and prepare replacements. And, you know, we've been getting into a cycle where you could see Sadio Mane um, Roberto Firmino before his form declined, and uh, and Mohamed Salah making those kind of moves, and you know Salah <laughs> famously recently giving interviews to uh, the Spanish media where he talked about his interest in playing in Spain. You, there was a a pathway mapped out in which a Salah or a Mane was sold to Real Madrid or Barcelona for over 100 million euros, maybe substantially over that amount, and the money was reinvested in um, reinvigorating the team. 
that's been blocked for them uh, and they, they have to come up with another solution. Um, one solution could be that FSG put their own money into the project, but that's something they don't haven't wanted to do up until now and certainly avoid, avoided doing in, in January. Um, we know Klopp is a bad loser, which isn't necessarily a bad thing from, a, from an elite football manager. But how long does he endure having done what he has done with Liverpool um, and being named the best manager in the world? Um, how long does he endure chasing after other clubs? And certainly... It, it's hard to see this season being replicated next season. I think there are a lot of, of additional factors and um, taking away the Anfield home advantage, the pressure that puts on referees to give marginal calls in their favour. Um, people have talked about the preparation regime that um, that Liverpool use and the fact that they, they use a lot of caffeine um, to up performances of players and that you can only do that for so many seasons in a row before you start to get a drop off in the effect and and um and and players um struggling because they've been pushed too hard physically now all of these things are elements that feed into a decision that Jurgen Klopp will have to make if he can't turn it around to the level of performance that he wants to be, which is competing for Premier League title, competing for Champions League title. At present, it looks like he's not even going to be in the Champions League next season. Um, and they, there's no doubt that there has to be a very significant change in performance for them to compete for the Premier League next season. It's often said that timing is everything and uh, leaving at the right time is also something which is an art. and. Uh, unlike his uh, departure from Borussia Dortmund, uh, which was slightly ignominious uh, given what he'd achieved there and the amount of time he had invested. Perhaps, just perhaps, Jurgen Klopp will see an opportunity to leave his legacy untarnished at Anfield. A legacy which certainly has been tarnished uh, incredibly uh, to the point where um, even a, a big tin of Brasso, Duncan, couldn't <laughs> couldn't clean it up for our older listeners there, um, <laughs> is the, that of the International Football Association Board, who um, this week uh, decided to effectively um, back up uh, as badly as a refuse truck beeping um, on the handball law, something that we have been discussing uh, over the last, well, I don't know, Duncan, it feels like we've been back to the prehistoric days with regards to um, uh, discussing this and uh, and how badly it has gone um, in the attempts to modernise it. But uh, common sense, to a degree, appears to have prevailed. Uh, we see it week in, week out in the English Premier League with decisions which are not only wrong but inconsistent uh, within the interpretation of laws of the game, which now have been simplified to a degree. Um, are you pleased? Uh, well, 
it has because been. if you are ifab will be very happy because obviously they take a lot of note of what you say <laughs> if they if they took any note of what we said they would um they would have reconsidered the law um when they signaled its introduction because that's when we first flagged up that this was going to be a disaster that was going to cause chaos um in the game because it was an extremely badly framed law which didn't you just had to think through the implications of having conditional and ball laws in, in different areas of the field and um, declaring it everything that touched an arm in the build-up to a goal, a foul, uh, which is something that never happened in football, that that was going to cause problems. Every, you know, obviously, everyone couldn't see that, but they should have been able to see it by thinking it through. And the people who are supposed to think these things through, I mean, the people who are in charge of governance of the game, who are supposed to have the best interests of football at their heart, they're the ones who've got the time to think it through and should have been testing the proposal out um, in a minor league um, to start with, to see to see if it worked or not. As they are, you know, the, one of the things in this IFAB announcement last week was that they were going to experiment with Arsene Wenger's um, review of the, the offside law, um, with Wenger's idea being that a player should be considered onside if any part of his body that he can legally score a goal with is level with the second last defender. Now, great, they're going to experiment on that one. I, I think they shouldn't even bother with experimenting with that because it's obvious to me that that fundamentally changes football. Um, and also doesn't get rid of the problem we have with offside at present. And you have a, a marginal decision to make, which we've brought in technology, which is uh, physically incapable of making that marginal decision. You just shift it from being in front of the defender to um, having a, a one part of your body in line with the defender. It's another you know, stupid proposal, but at least this one they're going to test rather than bring it in immediately. Um, on handball, I don't think they've solved what we call Schrodinger's handball law entirely, they, but they have um, reversed um, significantly. So they they say they're clarifying the handball law and they're saying it's a handball offence if a player deliberately touches the ball with their hand arm. For example, moving the hand arm towards the ball, which is you know what handball was for decades. Is a player deliberately trying to handle the ball was the fundamental part of the rule. Where they messed it up was making it automatic handball offence if the ball was touched or hit the attacker's arm in the build-up for a goal. Now they've they've removed some of that in that they've said that accidental handball that leads to a teammate scoring a goal or having a goal scoring opportunity will no longer be considered an offence. But they've left in that if you score a goal when it comes off your arm, um, even if accidental, or immediately after the ball has touched your hand arm, even if accidental, that will be chopped off and will not be considered a goal. I, I think that while better, is still problematic because you have the situation where a, a you know a, a goalkeeper or a defender hits the ball off an opponent from one meter away. Um, he has his back turned to goal. It bounces off the back of his his arm or or high up in his arm and goes in the net. I you know th that's not intentional handball. It's if anything, it's the defender or the goalkeeper's error. Therefore, um, for the simplicity of the rule, let that be a goal rather than have the referee make conditional decisions in, in certain uh, situations on the field. Um, they've also tried to 
um, clarify the unnaturally bigger element of the handball uh, law, making the body um, unnaturally bigger that they brought in recently by saying that uh, the, the referee should make a judgment of whether the, the position of the hand arm is not a consequence of or justifiable by the player's body movement for that specific situation. Um, again, that's trying to put detail into something which we had with the original handball law, which was it's only handball if you're deliberately trying to touch the ball. I think sort of breaking it down into little elements uh, and trying to cover everything in a set of, of rules which have to be assessed um, by the referee on the field of play and assessed by the VAR while we have VAR in the game subsequently, it's time consuming. I mean, we had a good example um, on Monday night where the referee, David Cook, gave what was a clear, in my view, a clear handball by Kai Havertz before he scored um, against Everton and which the referee saw and which seemed pretty obvious from um, the flow of play. They took 90 seconds to go through that on video and assess whether maybe it hadn't hit his his arm first and 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 had caught uh, him high enough up on the arm that it wasn't a handball. It's the 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 degree of detail is actually detrimental to having clear cut decisions and is actually adding controversy to the game. And if you you know if you want a great example of how IFAB and FIFA and Gianni Infantino have messed up the rules of the game over the last um, three, four years. I think the handball is, is the perfect one. You go to last year's revision where they, they changed where handball should be judged from uh, and um, said that the arm ends at the bottom of the armpit. I mean, how do you judge where the bottom of the armpit is? And in, in even with, with television uh, evidence to help you. And so they changed the rule to that, then accompanied the laws with an image of of what was supposed to be the where the arm ends. And it was actually uh, an image of a short uh, sleeved shirt, which went far further down the arm than the bottom of the armpit. So even in their own uh, illustration of their own stupidly changed laws, they couldn't produce an illustration that matched the rewritten law. That, that to me, is the cardinal example of how little attention to detail there is from the people who are in charge of the rules of the game at present. Personally, I would go for the armpit hair <laughs> um, with regards to uh, judging where the armpit ends and begins. Um, and therefore, That's... everyone would, would be able to shave their armpits and uh, therefore not have that problem done. That, that, Ian, is an important philosophical and legal question. Is is the armpit here part of the armpit or not? And if it is part of, of the armpit, then certain people's armpits go further down the body than other people's armpits. You know, Frank, so, so, I think Frank Lampard at one point was shaved his armpits on his, on his partner's request. Isn't that right? I, I certainly couldn't comment on that. Uh, but I would say that there was a lot of players in the 1970s who didn't shave their armpits um, and would not be surviving on offside laws of today. So, Duncan, uh, it is the first podcast of the week uh, here at Transfer Window. So, therefore, we are choosing our heroes and villains uh, before we uh, depart. 
and I'm going to ask you to name your villain before I name my hero. Because your hero will obviously be Stephen Gerrard for his achievements in, in ending Celtic's run of uh, nine consecutive titles. I think you know my feelings on that. <laughs> well, I think he's deserving of a hero award. That's quite a remarkable um, performance Stop as Stop manager. There. There's nothing you can say. Nothing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> villain, villain this week, I am going to choose Raheem Sterling uh, for another typical performance against Manchester United and his, his inability to put the ball in the net when presented with it um, a couple of yards from goal with, um, with an out-of-position goalkeeper to beat. Uh, it's not the first time we've seen that. His career track record against Manchester United playing for Liverpool and Manchester City, I believe, is 23 appearances, zero goals, two assists um, for some reason um, you assume it has to be a, a mental block by this stage he just can't put the ball in the net in these uh, in these key games although he does have an argument that he could have had a first half penalty when um, when a Manchester United player basically stood in his way as he was uh, traversing the box although he wouldn't have taken the penalty obviously <laughs> <Well>. so <laughs> So you still wouldn't have the chance to score. Um, Could have had Ederson taking the penalty. We're still waiting for that Ederson penalty. We're still waiting for that. Yeah, we are. We are. Um, So my hero of the last few days is an unlikely one for the Transfer Window podcast because, as you all know, we are not exactly um, very complimentary of the uh, miracle that is Gareth Bale in terms of his four Champions League winning medals. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et at Real Madrid. However, uh, four goals uh, and assists in two games for Spurs shows that he has rediscovered the fact that in fact he is a professional footballer, and uh, he's actually quite good at it as well. So um, I am going to try and redress the balance uh, in terms of uh, our criticism of Gareth Bale and his golfing obsession by saying that Gareth Bale. You are a Transfer Window Podcast's hero of this week uh, for your performances, and we indeed hope that they continue uh, for the sake of Spurs fans, but most of all, for Josie Mourinho's sanity. Um, This has been the first one of the week. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed it. Please, if you have, give us a five-star review on iTunes, and of course, If you are listening on YouTube or you want to listen on YouTube as well, turn on your notifications and then you get to know when the podcast drops. Please engage with us on our social media channels, which are at Transfer Podcast on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Duncan is at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I am at Garbo SJ. Uh, As you know, we will reply Um, We are not one of those podcasts or indeed those people who do not respond to our listeners. Uh, We love you all, clearly. Uh, We will be back later in the week. Until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 